0: Justice.
1: Mr. Chief
2: Justice, and may it please the court.
3: Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be.
1: You can stand on the street corner, you know, not, you know, spouting Nazi hatred, but all of a sudden you ask for a quarter and you can't speak.
4: A reparations is not simply about the victim receiving money, but having the state being held accountable by providing money to the individual or to their families as a symbolic sign that a wrong has been done. See, I'm in the
5: car right now, dad. I'm looking at the prison right now. I'm, I'm looking at San Quentin.
2: <laughs>
6: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Working on this show, we look for the law everywhere. We see it in the shape and structure of our lives, our thoughts, and our loves. Over the past year, we found the law in places as different as comedy clubs.
4: You know, the problem, these miniskirts, what
7: in the world is
8: happening with fashion? Bedrooms. I was like, oh, is this what this is? (laughs) Like this, (laughs) like, unbearable lightness of being. (laughs) And, sorry. (laughs) And even in our own conscience. Cannibalism by stranded sailors is harsh, but not unheard of.
3: Dudley, who was really the leader of the group understood that sort of the custom in the, in the oceans, the maritime custom, was that in these kinds of situations, killing somebody, if necessary, uh, was acceptable. As we look back over this
6: year's stories, one idea came up again and again. Redemption. What it means to turn your life around. How the law handles forgiveness. So we'd like to revisit three of this year's redemption stories. They don't all have endings that are neat and tidy, but each in its own way offers the promise that change can happen and that the future can be different from the past. Like most people living in cities and towns around the country, you probably aren't all that surprised when someone approaches you and asks for money. They look you in the eye. They ask for a dollar or a dime. Some people see it as a nuisance, but is it against the law? Reporter Ann
7: Hepperman has the story. Don Norton unfolds a ragged cardboard poster. It's so old, it looks like it's about to dissolve. He holds it just below his chest, faces the street, and waits. The
9: sign that we we are going to stand on the corner with is a sign that says, please help any way you can.
7: We're in a subway parking lot in Springfield, Illinois. Sometimes
9: we get donations right away. Other times it can take up to three or four hours before we get anything. It all depends.
7: Don Norton's been panhandling for about 20 years. He says you can't pinpoint who's going to give. The sweet little old lady might spit in your face, while the guy with the crew cut presses a 20 into your hand.
9: And we have somebody coming. Somebody is donating.
7: A woman pulls up in a minivan and hands him $5. God bless you and then drives away. The scene sounds simple, but there are actually a lot of laws that just directed how this woman gave Norton that $5.
9: Now, legally, I cannot step into the roadway and accept a donation. This is legal here. The police will say from sidewalk to sidewalk
7: is roadway. Don has Springfield's uh, panhandling laws tucked in his brain like a lawyer. He has to.
9: to Breaking
7: them just invites trouble. Tickets, fines, jail time. Especially after the city decided to crack down on panhandlers a few years ago. In 2007, Springfield passed a law that made it illegal for anyone to ask for money downtown. Springfield
9: City Ordinance 131.06. Panhandling is prohibited. To report panhandling in the downtown area, please call 788-8311, which is the Springfield Police Department.
7: So just introduce yourself. Victoria Ringer, R-I-N-G-E-R. Victoria Ringer is the head of downtown Springfield, Inc., a kind of civic improvement organization. The panhandling was impacting the experience.
2: The
3: world has never had good definition of the word
7: liberty. The experience she's referring to is Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. Springfield is the town Lincoln called home. And every year, thousands of tourists come to the town's downtown historic district.
10: We're all Lincoln all the time. And, and, you know, you have to appreciate where your bread's buttered. And and we know
7: that Lincoln has done a lot of that for, for our city. What
3: constitutes the bulwark of our liberty and independence?
7: tourists bring a lot of money into downtown Springfield. So the local panhandlers see the tourists as good business, just like the local shopkeepers do.
10: Several businesses were experiencing a lot of issues that were affecting their bottom line.
7: Ringer says by 2007, the begging problem had gotten out of control. Panhandlers were harassing the tourists, she says. They'd ask for change from people waiting in line to see Lincoln's house. They'd knock on car windows at stoplights. They'd interrupt people on restaurant patios. One panhandler, she says, even nabbed a piece of someone's lunch. Garrett
10: Moffat, who runs the ghost tours downtown, and he's got panhandlers following his tours every night of the week, you know,
7: yelling at him and saying, you know, give me money, that kind of thing. City boosters were afraid the tourists would get scared off and the businesses would lose money.
10: Whether you're in your car and you roll up the window really quickly or you're walking along a city street or you're sitting at a a bus bench or what have you, you don't want to feel as if you're being put on the spot um, or to feel that guilt or think about it later in the day. You know, I've gone by and later on the day, I'm like, God, should I have given that guy, you know, and then being pissed, (laughs) you know, because you're like, well, how come they can't go get a job? I'm working three.
7: So downtown business owners asked their city councilmen to introduce a law that would put all kinds of restrictions on asking for money.
10: We needed to take action, and we didn't really have any other avenue besides let's put it out there and see who hates it.
7: Springfield Ordinance 131.06 makes it illegal to go up and ask someone for a quarter. You can't beg after sunset or before sunrise. No panhandling in the historic district. No panhandling in groups of two or more. And if caught, panhandlers are fined up to $100 or have to serve up to 40 hours of community service for each offense. Hundreds of towns have created anti-panhandling ordinances. Orlando prohibits begging in its commercial district. Atlanta banned panhandling near the convention center. In May... Yakima, Washington made it illegal for beggars to accept money at 26 intersections. Cities have been using these kinds of laws to limit begging for at least 20 years. But the history is much longer than that.
11: We being uh, people in government have been trying to deal with beggars and poor people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the first real set of laws that addressed begging were in 1349 in England under Edward III, of all people. That's
7: Bill Quigley. He teaches law and poverty at Loyola University in New Orleans. In 1349, feudalism collapsed. Up until then, the poor had been living under feudal lords.
11: Poor people belonged to somebody. They might have belonged to Lord Hammurabi, Lord Lord Schmidt, Count so-and-so.
7: Suddenly, the poor were on their
11: own. They called them vagabonds, beggars, vagrants. People were wandering around, and they didn't have work, and they didn't have a place to stay. And so they started begging.
7: King Edward III felt the need to take action. And so he enacted the statutes of laborers.
11: Those laws, uh, first of all, made sure that people didn't wander around. They were restricted to their own town. And uh, it was compulsory work. Everybody had to work. You just had to work. That was the law. And if you didn't know how to work, they would find some way to put you to work prohibition of begging was the first thing that they did, and that was the center of it.
7: Quigley says the English poor laws cast a long shadow of shame, even in America.
11: There is a stigma in being poor, and these laws that outlaw begging and the things that seek to prohibit poor people from standing in the, on the side holding up a sign, and that uh, those are deeply rooted concerns that we have.
7: Don Norton says he sees that shame when he's holding his own sign.
9: I can see sadness in their face. Um, But I also see uh, disappointment in their face, that why isn't this man working? Um, I see um, confusion.
7: But the fact is, is that panhandling is a big part of how Norton makes his life work. Things started out normal enough.
9: Don Norton life history was born in Ord, Nebraska, in a barn. Literally in a barn.
7: He graduated high school and went to college for a bit. Even worked in radio for a while. But... For a lot of reasons, Norton couldn't stay on track. And eventually, he ended up in a homeless shelter. There, he met his common-law wife, Karen Otterson. It was love at first sight.
9: No, I hated her guts.
7: Okay, maybe not.
9: I did. I I hated her guts. I thought she was uh, a very dirty woman. She had just gotten back from a 1,200-mile bike ride. She just looked scummy to
7: me. But then Norton got deathly sick and ended up on Karen Otterson's doorstep. She nursed him back to health. And they've been together ever since.
12: Oh, we've been together
2: going on 12 years.
7: Otterson grew up in the foster care system and now receives social security disability. Norton works odd jobs.
9: I shovel snow. I do maintenance work. I paint, drywall, uh, tuck point, um, do all kinds of odd jobs. If you got a job for me, I'll take the job.
7: But since they've been together, they've always panhandled to make ends meet. For them, panhandling is almost like another job. Together, they can make about $100 a day. They use the money for everyday life things. We was also using it for hygiene products, dog food when we had our dog, um, and food. And even to pay rent. They're no longer homeless. A little while ago, they moved into an apartment that costs about $1,200 a month. Panhandling helps pay for that the city of Springfield don't like it, well, they can kiss my ass. The ordinance against begging passed in Springfield unanimously in the late summer of 2007. And as soon as the law passed, Don and Karen say they saw an abrupt change in the way the police treated them and other panhandlers.
9: Sometimes they would just pull over their car, walk up to the grocery cart, rip the sign off the cart, and rip it up in front of you and say, I don't want to see this again, or you're going to jail.
7: In the past two years, Springfield police have issued about 100 panhandling citations. Norton estimates they've given him about 12 tickets, Otterson 15. Then one day, Otterson was standing in front of a JCPenney with her grocery cart and with her dog Sadie.
2: I was thrown in jail and my dog was placed in a pound, and I was not able to get my dog back because of that. That's whenever I told
7: Don that our constitutional rights were being taken from us. Their First Amendment rights, she told him.
9: I did not believe that. I thought she was nuts and saying what, you know, she kept on ranting and raving about. Dawned on me that, you know what, ladies, right.
1: A lot of people would think that panhandlers are a nuisance, so I would stopping it be against the law. Well, Dave, let me give you an example here. Now, if a panhandler is here in downtown
2: Springfield...
7: And in September of last year, Norton and Otterson sued the city of Springfield.
1: This lawsuit claims that that is a violation of their freedom of speech, and it also claims that police are taking this ordinance too far.
7: They found and hired Mark Weinberg, a lawyer in Chicago who specializes in panhandling lawsuits. My
1: friend Todd calls me king of the panhandlers. You know, like, I've done seven of these lawsuits over the last... 12 years.
7: Weinberg and other homeless rights advocates say the best way to fight anti begging laws is through the First Amendment.
1: These cases are not about the right to give money. This is all just about the right to ask for money. You can stand on the street corner, you know, not, you know, spouting Nazi hatred, but all of a sudden you ask for a quarter and you can't speak. You know, we think that's extreme.
7: Weinberg says these kinds of ordinances are unnecessary. Most cities already restrict what's called aggressive panhandling. And that's not protected by the First Amendment.
1: You can't panhandle within 10 feet of an ATM machine. Okay, You can't panhandle at a bus depot where people are waiting for the bus. You know, that would be a form of harassment. Um, You can't touch somebody. You can't, uh, you know, be abusive to somebody. Those are the type of restrictions that most cities have. And they're the type of restrictions that courts have upheld as permissible under the First Amendment.
7: The law says that Norton and Otterson can't ask for a dollar in downtown Springfield, but it would be just fine if they became Girl Scouts and sold cookies across from the old state capitol. Weinberg calls it a slippery slope.
1: If you can do this for panhandlers, like, oh, panhandlers can carry a sign, but they can't speak, why can't you do that for labor union disputes and protests? Why can't you say, okay, labor unions, they can carry signs and they can pass out leaflets, but they can't talk to passerby's? You know, like, this has dramatic implications for the First Amendment throughout everybody's business.
7: In the Springfield case, Weinberg argues that beggars can sometimes communicate important political or social messages. So a panhandler is not just a panhandler. It's a sign that something is wrong with our society. Like what it's like to be a veteran, for example, or how we treat people with disabilities or mental illness. Mm -hmm. Bill Quigley, the law professor, said federal courts have said that the First Amendment protects people's rights to deliver those messages.
11: The right of, of a person to, to essentially say, look, I, I, I am the victim of economic injustice, no one would say that's not political. If they said I am, uh, you know, a consequence of economic dislocation or the information age and globalization, that would be a political statement. But most people are like, look, I just need some money.
7: Other panhandlers across the country have sued cities for the right to beg, and they've won. Of course, letting people speak their minds, though, doesn't resolve the underlying problem, poverty. But Don Norton says in a way it doesn't matter.
9: It's not only giving me a little bit of power or a great deal of power, but it is letting the, the man know that I'm not one that's going to back down. I, I love the power. I do. And without power, what do we have?
7: It will probably take a few years to get a decision in Norton and Otterson's case. But even if they won, it's not clear how much their circumstances would actually change, since it seems unlikely that making it legal to panhandle in Springfield or Orlando or Atlanta will help people get out of poverty or find new ways to support themselves. But this case is also about something else. What free speech really means, and who in our society has the right to it. For Life of the Law, I'm Ann Hepperman. The ACLU
6: filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of two homeless Massachusetts residents who solicit donations on the street the court is considering whether to take the case. You're listening to Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. And we're listening back to a few of our favorite stories from the past year, the ones that left us hopeful. And it's hard sometimes to feel hopeful when the law gets it wrong and it falls far short of justice. More than three-quarters of a century ago, in a small town in Alabama, a community, and a court work together to get everything wrong. How do we as a society ever make it right again? Life of the Law's reporter Ashley Cleek went back to that small town to find out what happened and what it would take to make it right.
4: This is your pardon, your pardon. I
12: have no hate versus gism. Color. I like old.
8: Clarence Norris Jr.'s father was always a great mystery. His mother talked about him sometimes, and Norris thought about his father a lot.
12: You know, growing up as a kid, you know, sometimes when things are bad, you feel why, why, why did my father leave me? Why is he here? Or, you know, but because you know it was always darkness to me mentally before it knowing anything about him.
8: Norris lives in Georgia and is self-employed as a truck driver. We meet at a mall in Macon, Georgia, and sit awkwardly in rocking chairs, sipping lemonade.
12: Lemonade, or sweet tea. That doesn't look like sweet tea. Well, I change the lemonade. Some people put a pound of sugar into their
8: tea. So. Norris is kind but guarded. He says he doesn't trust people easily. A and the past few years have brought Norris face to face with the difficult story of his father. It started a few years back when Norris was visiting family in his mom's hometown. There, he met a cousin.
12: He talked to me and he said, you know, your father had a
8: history I'm sure you don't know about. He told Norris that his father was one of the nine Scottsboro Boys, wrongly convicted of raping two white women in Alabama in 1931. A few months later, a relative sent Norris a PBS documentary about the Scottsboro Boys. It was the first time Norris saw a picture of his father or heard his voice.
11: I think all
12: people accused of saying that You know, that was a moment. That was a moment, you know, because I'd never seen him, you know. And so the documentary just discussed all of, uh, you know, what happened.
8: What happened is one of the biggest trials of the century. The case sparked protests from New York to Havana and Berlin. No,
3: louder, no. Organize, demonstrate.
8: It resulted in two Supreme Court rulings, dozens of books, a musical, and still echoes through the justice system. It was 1931. The US was in the midst of the Great Depression and black and white, young and old, were traveling the country looking for work. On one such train, traveling through North Alabama, a group of black and white men got into a fight.
3: And the train was stopped at Paint Rock, and that's when the case began.
8: Dan Carter is a retired professor of history from the University of South Carolina. He wrote a history of the trials called Scottsboro, A Tragedy of the American South, that has become the book about the Scottsboro Boys. He picks up the story.
3: Turned out there were two white young women who were dressed as men but uh, were traveling on the train. And uh, the older one was terrified they were going to be uh, arrested for crossing the state lines for, for um, illicit purposes.
8: The older woman's name was Victoria Price, and she had worked off and on as a prostitute. Price and her friend, Ruby Bates, worried they would be arrested and charged with vagrancy for riding the train with men.
3: So she acc- knew that she'd be protected if she accused the young men of uh, raping her. And she and her friend, her name was Victoria Price, and Ruby Bates accused uh, these nine black teenagers of, uh, of raping them.
8: All nine men were immediately arrested. Clarence Norris was the oldest at 19. The youngest, Roy Wright, was only 13. The men were taken to jail in Scottsboro, Alabama.
3: The lynch mob surrounded the jail, but thanks to the local sheriff who called for the National Guard, he managed to protect them.
0: My grandfather was sheriff uh, at the time the Scottsboro Boys incident occurred.
8: That's Billy Wan. His grandfather was Sheriff M.L. Wan.
0: There's a picture that I have here that I can show you. He always wore overalls, and he kept his teeth in his pocket. And when he was going to go and talk to somebody, he would put his teeth in and, and go talk.
8: Billy never knew his grandfather, but his father, who was a teenager at the time, told him about that day.
0: This mob had formed, and they had telephone poles that they were going to use as battering rams to open the doors of the jailhouse. The story is told that my grandfather went outside and told the crowd that he would kill the first person that came through the door. And he then uh, took off his gun belt. And he walked out through the crowd, and the crowd parted. No one ever touched him. And he went across the street to the courthouse and called the governor, who then sent the National Guard. And had he not done that, more than likely, all nine of those boys would have been lynched.
8: In fact, that had happened only a few months prior in Indiana. Three young black men had been accused of robbery, murder, and rape. A mob broke into the local jail, and two of the men were lynched. The first trial in Scottsboro lasted only three days. The jury returned with a guilty verdict after less than two hours. Eight were sentenced to death. Only the youngest, Roy Wright, was spared. Since he was 13, the court only sentenced him to life in prison. After the first trial, the Scottsboro Boys case was taken over by lawyers from the International Labor Defense, the legal wing of the Communist Party. They appealed the sentences and for years the trials bounced back and forth between Alabama and the U.S. Supreme Court. Dan Carter
3: The United States Supreme Court in a major decision called Powell versus Alabama uh, reversed the trial verdict and uh, on the grounds that they had not had adequate counsel, and that was something new.
8: But the trials kept going, and in 1935, the second Supreme Court decision, Norris versus Alabama, ruled that the defendants had not been judged by a jury of their peers, because there were no black
3: men on the jury. So it was uh, sent back to court, tried again. Once again, the outcomes were the same.
8: In trial after trial, the state of Alabama always found the Scottsboro Boys guilty, The trials ended in 1937, when a bizarre political compromise was reached. Alabama released four of the Scottsboro Boys. Five were sent to jail, including Norris' father, Clarence Norris, Sr. Norris spent 15 years in prison. Twice, his head was shaved in preparation for his execution.
12: He said his cell was right close to the death row chamber. And he heard men being executed, you know, You can hear them, and uh, that's powerful. I I don't know what that does to a person, you know, to hear someone being put to death and knowing that that has been your sentence handed down to you, that eventually your turn is going to come to be in that chair for something that you didn't do.
8: And the lawyers kept appealing the convictions, Norris was finally granted parole in 1946, and he immediately left Alabama for New York City, violating his parole. Eventually, the rest of the Scottsboro boys were paroled or escaped from jail and disappeared. Like Norris, some changed their names and went into hiding in an attempt to escape the infamy of the case.
3: Even though they, uh, they were out of prison, their lives were still, in, and their, their future was still in jeopardy because of the fact that they had broken their parole.
8: In New York, Norris got married and had two daughters. But sometime in the early 70s, he traveled back down to Georgia where he met Clarence Norris Jr.'s mother.
12: Well, she explained to me that uh, she was at her home at that time sitting on a porch and this man walks down the street and uh, she caught his eye and he came over and they started to talk and it went from there, and uh, they got married. She just told me that one day, he told her where he was going. I think she told me to take care of his mother, and, you know, he never returned. And um, she's pregnant with me.
8: His mother sent her brothers to try and find him, but Norris had disappeared. His son thinks maybe he went back to live with his family in New York, or maybe being near the Alabama state line spooked him. For 30 years, Norris had lived as a fugitive. Then finally, in 1976, Alabama Governor George Wallace granted Norris a pardon. And
12: this is your
4: pardon, your pardon.
12: Even looking at the, the snippets from that ceremony uh, on YouTube, where Norris is sitting down and,
8: you know, he gets emotional. I have no hate. In the news clip, the camera zooms in on Norris. Please. The years have collected in bags because under his eyes. I like old. And as he speaks, his eyes fill with tears. And I think all people accused of theft, which they didn't
5: commit, should be free. I wish
4: these other age boys were around.
8: Norris is the only Scottsboro boy to receive a pardon from the state of Alabama in his lifetime. While down south, Norris visited Dan Carter's history class at Emory University in Atlanta.
3: One of the students asked him, um, what what was the worst thing about being in prison for so long for a crime you didn't commit? And I thought he was going to talk about the nightmarish conditions, being, being in a cell down the, just down the hall from where all the executions took place, and he was under sentence of death twice. But he said the worst thing about being prison for that long is you learn to trust no one. You trust no one because anyone will betray you.
8: Clarence Norris Sr. died in 1989, and today... Everyone who was a part of the trial is gone. But still, the story of the Scottsboro Boys bleeds into people's lives. Sons, daughters, grandsons, and neighbors.
2: This is a picture of Scottsboro, 1931, when the trial happened.
8: Sheila Washington is the founder of the Scottsboro Boys Museum and Cultural Center. She points to a black and white photo of a mob of people and pickups packed in front of the Scottsboro Courthouse. It was.
2: 1,500 people that lived here. The day of the trial, 10,000 people showed up on the courthouse square. Here's the National Guard marching. They're taking up guns. Uh, People from uh, from, uh, as far away as uh, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama came to this case to hear this trial.
8: Washington has been collecting pictures and memorabilia about the case for years. — And
2: these are the actual keys that went to the jail cell, where they were locked up. —
8: As a young Black woman growing up in Scottsboro, Washington likes to tell the story about when she was a teenager and found an autobiography of one of the Scottsboro boys under her parents' bed. — Our father didn't want me reading it. — Her father snatched the book away, saying, that story is too hurtful. — Too much hurtful, harmful things in it. Eventually, Washington read the autobiography, and the convictions of the nine innocent teenagers haunted her.
2: The book became a part
8: of my life. But all nine were dead, their families lost to history. So Washington decided that she would take up the fight to clear their names. Give these young men some respect and dignity. Washington called lawyers and state senators. It took years. But finally, in November of 2013, Washington got what she was pushing for the governor of Alabama exonerated all nine men and signed the Scottsboro Boys Act.
2: If you can find that somebody, your family members or someone has died and they were innocent, can be forgiven and given a posthumous pardon.
8: Washington is already working on the case of another man she thinks can receive a posthumous pardon under the Scottsboro Boys Act. And according to Dan Carter, in the Jim Crow South of the 1920s and 30s, There were likely thousands of cases where black men and women were accused and convicted of crimes they did not commit.
3: Essentially, if you were black and you were accused of certain crimes, and rape was a fundamental one, and you were accused by a white person, you were convicted. (laughs) I mean, there just wasn't any way around it.
8: But proving these cases will be hard. Alabama has the third highest incarceration rate in the nation— And there is a two-year backlog for pardons already. So the new law makes getting a posthumous pardon difficult. The conviction has to be at least 80 years old and requires massive evidence, affidavits, and proof of innocence. Many cases are just too old and forgotten.
13: A posthumous pardon causes people to think about the next case.
8: That's John Miller, a lawyer and professor at the University of Alabama who helped write the Scottsboro Boys Act.
13: I you know, was aware of the case. Having grown up in Alabama, you it's part of sort of your mental landscape. You know, it's there.
8: Miller wasn't pleased by all the loopholes. But, he says, the act isn't simply a symbolic feel-good moment for Alabama.
13: Are we going to do better by the next group of people who get brought up on charges when the evidence looks a little thin, and when they come from a background that isn't like that of the people who are sitting in the jury box or the prosecutor uh, sitting across the courtroom from them.
8: Clarence Norris Jr. was the only family member of the Scottsboro Boys to attend the pardoning. And Norris feels responsible for his father's memory and a lack of resolution. While learning about the case, Norris discovered that in 1982, his father had petitioned the state of Alabama for reparations— $10,000 in compensation for wrongful incarceration.
12: —When I found out that he had tried, that he had tried, my father, and failed, I felt like, well, this is something that I need to finish for him. Even though he's not here to benefit from it, Uh, I feel like they still, when I say they, the state of Alabama still owes him.
8: In Alabama, a wrongful incarceration can be awarded $50,000 for every year of prison. So Norris and his sisters hired a lawyer and filed a case against the state of Alabama for $750,000 in reparations. They are the only family of all nine Scottsboro boys who can be found. States across the U.S. address reparations differently. Alabama is one of only 17 states that have mandated a fixed amount per year of wrongful incarceration. But in Alabama, the process of petitioning for reparations is strict. Only two people have ever received compensation. According to the Alabama Attorney General's Office, the statute of limitations for reparations for Clarence Norris has passed. And even the language of the very Scottsboro Boys Act says that a posthumous pardon cannot be used as evidence that the state owes anyone reparations. Again, Professor Miller.
13: Are these families owed, in a a moral sense, uh, some kind of compensation? Uh, I would say absolutely. Is it hard for them to achieve that uh, with the legal system before them as it is right now? Yes. Yes. It will be very, very difficult.
8: Alabama is comfortable with addressing its past. There are museums and monuments to the horrors of Jim Crow and the struggle of the civil rights movement. But when it comes to reparations, Alabama is wary. And according to Osagi Obasagi, a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings, reparations are a crucial step in addressing a dark past.
4: It's easy to say I'm sorry. It, it It's a little more difficult when you say, let me d- dig into my pockets and provide some type of financial compensation for my wrongdoing. You know, m- money talks and, and, and money forces a series of conversations um, that, quite frankly, the public needs to have about who was harmed, who perpetrated that harm and the importance of not going back down that path.
8: For states, there are practical arguments against reparations, chiefly money. Alabama, state lawmakers say, is a poor state and simply does not have the money to pay families or victims of injustice. State Senator Arthur Orr championed the Scottsboro Boys Act through the state legislature. Orr says that if the Scottsboro Boys were alive, they should receive reparations. But he questions whether the families of victims deserve compensation.
11: What you do for
3: one, you have to consider doing for others. And so you consider the others out there And then you get into, you know, you could get wives, of course, children, uh, others that all bring claims. And again, where where does it end and how can you get past that initial uh, individual that was wrongfully incarcerated?
8: It's a difficult question. A posthumous pardon does nothing for a dead man. It's for the living, the state, and the family. And in fact, Professor Obasagi explains, it's the same with reparations.
4: Reparations is not simply about the victim receiving money, but having the state being held accountable by providing money to the individual or to their families as a symbolic sign that a wrong has been done. And that's, again, the symbolic um, importance of that cannot be overstated because, you know, it does create a precedent to ensure that similar mistakes are not made again.
8: It's been 83 years since the Scottsboro Boys were first convicted of rape and sentenced to death. And the effects of their cases have fanned out like waves. Injustices piggyback on injustices up into the present day in cases like the Central Park Five and Trayvon Martin.
13: There is still at least a similar treatment of young black men uh, in that they are automatically suspect, that that the very presence of their bodies somehow um, brings about a kind of um, suspicion And I think that the echoes of that are still apparent um, in present day as well. So, you know, there is an extent to which dealing with these issues historically is also uh, an attempt to continue conversation about how to deal with them in the present day.
8: This is a conversation that Clarence Norris Jr. very much wants to have for his whole life. Norris has carried his father's name, not knowing what it meant or who his father was. Now, as he learns more, the past creeps into the present, and some of the weight his father carried becomes his own. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek. Ashley
6: contacted Clarence Norris Jr.'s attorney. He said the state is still silent on reparations. I'm Nancy Mullane, and this is Life of the Law. It can take some time to make a law, and it can take just as long, if not longer, to figure out whether the law went too far. For years, voters have gone to the polls and enthusiastically passed tough sentencing laws. They were hoping if they locked people up for longer and longer prison sentences, they'd be safe. Now voters are passing laws that set people free We're going to close with the story of one man who, thanks to voter reflection and a law passed to let people out of prison, is beginning his life all over again.
5: Hello, Nancy. This is Curtis. Just calling to let you know that um, I just got out about um, I guess 10 minutes ago. And I'm at the San Rafael um, Transit. I was uh, hoping I can get in touch with you. Trying to get a lift to the airport. Uh, So, uh, take care and uh,
6: I'll talk to you later. Bye. So go ahead and give me your name. I'd met Curtis Penn months earlier inside San Quentin, and we'd stayed in touch. He had no idea when or if he was getting out under the new law. In 1996, he was sentenced to 29 years to life for commercial burglary. 17 years later, on April 4, 2013, he was free.
3: Hello. Sandy.
6: Hi. Whoa. Oh, Sandy. Hi. <laughs> nice to share the moment with you, yeah, Mr. Mean, Penn. Just, yeah. You, uh, are you are out, out already. <laughs> of course. Uh, That's, That's really great. I have to get the first sounds of a man who's free.
5: It's it's strange because after all these years, I thought that I would be somewhat nervous, but I'm not nervous. I thought there would be some anxiety, but I uh, have a um, a sense of calm about me. All the inmates being
6: released from San Quentin were put in a big van that morning and dropped off at the local bus station. When I drive up, Curtis is standing on the curb. He's dressed in light gray sweats. He's got a big smile on his face, but he also looks stunned to be out in the real world.
5: This morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, I was in my cell, um, and, and the officer walked by and just said, "Pen." I go, yep. Yeah. She goes, uh, you're paroling. Click, click, and kept walking. And my cellie was like, did, she, did I just hear what she just said? I said, I think so. All Curtis has with him is a crate, one of those plastic
6: crates like mail carriers use. It holds everything he owns in the world. So
5: you got one box. That's it. I have um, my book bag, my Bible in there. Um, I also have a lot of socks. Hair grease, hair brush, toothpaste. Well, toothbrush, I need to buy some toothpaste. I left my tube there because I know about airports. And- and then I got some um, some schoolwork, some Hebrew. I t- I brought back with me because I was studying Hebrew. That's that's it.
6: That's your whole life.
5: I don't own anything else. You know, it's kind of sad. Simple. Yeah.
6: Nice. I mean, you don't have a lot to carry.
5: No, I do not. I do not have a lot, a lot to carry. <laughs> you're you're right. Um, I mean,
6: you don't have to move a lot of stuff. You're free.
5: I'm free. I could go anywhere in the world right now. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Anywhere, but all
6: Curtis has for an ID is a flimsy handwritten card with his name on it.
5: This card, uh, it's
6: a certificate, certificate of discharge, of discharge which is
5: card, to be kept in your possession from the California prison system. As an ex-felon, you are prohibited from certain activities. The back of the card.
6: He's got, got that and a little cash.
5: And after all these years, they give you $200. two hundred dollars, two fifties. First time, I twenty. Touched yeah. Another twenty. Money in uh. Another twenty. <laughs> 15, Fifteen years. 15. That's all I have. If it was to fall out of my pocket, I had a hole in my pocket and it was a drop-off, it would change the whole dynamics of the situation. Without this money in my pocket, I may not feel much different than, than that individual. I was homeless.
6: The first thing Curtis wants to do when we get on the road is check in with his dad. Do well, I have
5: the dollar one first? Nope.
6: Um, yeah. But Curtis doesn't know how to use a cell listen. phone. Oh, no, you don't have to listen. It's coming through the earphone. Wow.
5: I can just talk. Yeah. Can you hear? Yeah. Yeah.
6: But the cell phones are nice. Hey, how you doing,
5: Dad? <laughs> no, actually, um, a friend of mine picked me up. I just left. The, I'm at the San Rafael Transit. She, I'm in the car right now, Dad. Well, she's taking me um, to get a duffel bag and then she's going to take me out to breakfast. I'm looking at the prison right now. I'm, I'm looking at San Quentin. <laughs>
6: We drive from Marin County, where San Quentin is, over the Golden Gate Bridge into San Francisco. There's so much to talk about, so much to see. What do you, what do you see standing here, looking out?
5: Um, obviously the vehicles. I see the, the the clouds, the trees, and and I just see fresh air. I see um, not stifled rust and bars and barbed wire. I see uh, diversity. I see. People of different ages and different ethnicities and sizes and gender. Um, you know, in prison, you see primarily males and primarily black males. And um, I welcome the diversity, I welcome the, the change. I see opportunity. Mm. I see lots of opportunity. Every building I see and, and establishment, you know what I mean? I said to myself, That's opportunity for a job. Somebody, you can can work there. When I see um, trucks come by that's a place, who knows, I may be working there at some time. You know what I mean? Unloading trucks or driving trucks or cabs, you know. I just see a world of opportunity. Do
6: you want to walk? Sure. We pull up to a beach near the marina district. It just seems like the right thing to do. Take a walk on the yeah, beach that, for a minute. Yeah, that, I love that. Are you the kidding
5: too? me? Yeah, oh good. Let's uh, do that. The simple stuff, you yeah, know. Oh no, we can just take a
6: walk.
10: Wow,
2: this is a blessing right here.
6: My pleasure. Mind getting your shoes a little? No, not at okay. all. Uh,
11: it's
5: worth it. Look at that.
6: Isn't that just beautiful?
5: And uh, I like the fact that I you know, got out, the first place I come to is it's the beach. <laughs> I used to go swimming in the beach all the time, man, and the seaweed, and all that simple stuff.
6: I was thinking, would you like to just be alone for a minute? You haven't had any
5: time yeah, I was. I was alone for about two hours.
6: Okay, would well, you like to be alone right now?
5: I don't care. Why, are you ready? To use? What are you going to do?
6: I'm just going to go sit over there. Just let you have okay. some time to yourself.
5: You want to do that, huh? Yeah,
6: just take five minutes or so. Okay. I'll just sit over there and you just okay, have I a little will. time. Okay, you okay. can walk around a bit or okay. I'm just going to be over there. All right. Okay. That'll work. All, all right. right. Watching Curtis walk alone on the bay, I decide to forget about all the other things I have to do. I've been following Curtis's case for five months. Today he's free, free, not even on parole. And I just want to be here for him these few hours.
5: I need it, Ben, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. That was, that was good, that was a
6: good time. So what do you want to do now? Want to go get some breakfast?
5: Yeah, that'd be great. I need to get a duffel bag. As you okay, see, we're gonna I... go
6: get a bag. Okay. Let's go get a bag. Yeah, great. Okay.
5: I love that. <laughs> all right. I hope I'm not um, preventing you from being
2: scared. Not at all.
5: I didn't mean to take up your whole morning, but man, this is very, this is a blessing.
6: I was thinking we could go get you some, you know, like a, a pair of pants and a jacket or something if you want. We yeah. want to go to breakfast.
5: Yeah, we can go because I'm only working with so much money. I don't want to really spend too much
6: money. Well, I could actually yeah. front you, not front you, I could pay for a pair of pants and a shirt.
5: Oh, so
9: really? So
6: could get on the bus, look and
9: get uh, off plane? that
6: bus, look at, yeah. What do you want to do? Yeah,
5: it's up to you. Are yeah. you hungry? I'm gonna let you decide, because really, are you hungry? I'm not hungry. I'm
6: not that hungry. We can just stop and get a cup of coffee and then go over there. How's that?
5: Okay, I'll get a. Uh, you can get yourself a coffee and I'll. We just are just to breakfast, gonna right? see.
6: No, this is just a coffee shop. It's not a breakfast. Okay. Breakfast. Like I don't think you should probably eat a big meal right now. because no. There's a lot happening with you, and you want
5: to... They say, like, a Danish or something? Yeah, exactly. That's what I need, a Danish piece water. Just a nice
6: toast, you know, a good piece of good toast. I mean, really good toast. You don't like toast? I want a Danish water. Okay, you can have a Danish or water. Yeah. We'll get you a Danish or water. We go to a cafe in San Francisco called The Mill. Curtis is very self-conscious. He keeps worrying that people are looking at him. After all, guards have been looking at him for 17 years. But no one here is looking at Curtis. They're all staring at their cell phones and computers. We still have a half hour to go before he has to be at the airport. We go to an upscale thrift shop. All Curtis has to wear right now are gray sweats. We have to hurry now. Okay. So we have literally a half an hour to get you clothes. And this is on me.
5: This is on you? This is on me. Okay, you're going to let me pay you back. Some nope, time. this okay. is
6: on me. It's just one of those things that gives me so much pleasure. There, now I okay. here we go. Go ahead. Just go and cross the street. Go inside okay. and I'll find the men's department store. <laughs> okay. okay, I'll be right there. I just have to put this in. Okay. When Curtis comes out of the dressing room, he's a changed man. He shed the baggy sweats for charcoal gray wool pants and he's picked out a green sweater and a business-like leather jacket. He looks sharp. We drive to the airport, but when we get to the ticket counter, the attendant says his flight is booked for the next day. Curtis's dad made a mistake. I look at Curtis and he looks terrified. This is a big glitch. When you're in prison for that long, when something goes wrong, anything goes wrong, you're in trouble. Curtis hands his discharge card to the airline employee. It's not the kind of ID card they see every day. She stands in front of her computer, typing for what seems like forever. Then she prints out a ticket and hands it to Curtis. He's on the flight he wanted.
5: I don't know what else to say, Nancy, other than feel blessed. (laughs) And it's strange because it's like this is meant to be the setup, the system is set up for you to be afraid, to be fearful of the unknown, you know, coming out. and, And really, the system doesn't want people to help you. They want you to get your $200, go back to the community in which you you're accustomed to and um, go back to the same behavior
6: I called Curtis the other day, eight months after the day he was released. I want to hear everything
5: that is happening in your life. Oh, okay. I have uh, since uh, found employment. I work now in Berkeley at a, as a machine operator. Still in options in transitional housing. And they uh, asked me to be a house manager. So the place where I manage a group of men uh, with different um, disorders and whatnot. was able to grow in school. In statistics, and uh, I, was, I was able to complete that. I was able to visit my children over Thanksgiving, my children and my, my father. Um, that's pretty much it, for the most part.
6: Hundreds of inmates like Curtis are released from prison in California every day with $200 and flimsy ID cards. Those first few hours after they're released are crucial. Who's able to offer them kindness, a cup of coffee, change of clothes. I'm lucky I could do it for just one guy. And I think a lot about that airline employee who got Curtis on the flight he needed and what she said as he headed for the plane. Have a nice life. For Life of the Law, I'm Nancy Mullane. It's been two years since voters passed Prop 36, and under the new law, California courts have released nearly 2,000 prisoners and denied 166 petitions. 800 are still waiting to have their cases heard. Curtis is doing well. He's working as a landscaper and has nearly completed his bachelor's degree in social psychology at San Francisco State University. It's been a great year at Life of the Law. We want to thank our advisory board members and our advisory panel scholars for their production support. Special thanks to Anna Maria Marshall and Osagi Obazagi. Julia Barton, Anne Hepperman, and Elisa Roth edited these stories. Casey Minor edited this Life of the Law special. Caitlin Prest is our senior producer. Life of the Law features music by Todd McDonald, Kyle Kaplan, and Matthew Darr. We're distributed by the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. And this special is part of the Infinite Guest year-end extravaganza. Now that you've got a little time, sit back, put on your headphones, and sample the other shows. If you haven't heard Secret Skin, or A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment, or You Must Remember This, you are missing out. Find these shows and others at infiniteguest.org. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, and by our listeners. If you're new to Life of the Law or you're a regular, take a minute, sign in, and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a note and tell us your favorite story of the year. Visit Life of the Law. Org. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.